When we think of inequality, we mostly think of inequality between people. How is it that ordinary people are paying far more of their tax in percentage term than these billionaires? According to the Sutton Trust, a tiny elite made up of the privately educated are five times more likely to hold the top jobs in politics, media, business and the judiciary. But what about inequality between companies? Does it matter if markets become dominated by a few mega companies, leaving a long tail of mini ones lagging behind? I'm Samaya Keynes, economics columnist at the Financial Times, and in this special episode of the IFS Zooms In, I'm going to share some of the findings of the IFS Deaton Review of Inequalities, a multidisciplinary project exploring the causes and consequences of inequality in Britain, funded by the Nuffield Foundation. We'll hear from Professor John Van Rienen at the London School of Economics. He'll talk about trends in inequality between companies and what could be causing them. The clear message from the data is that there has been a pretty big increase of inequality between firms over you know, the last 20, 25 years. Then I'll talk to Amenia Fletcher of the University of East Anglia about how easy it is for policymakers to do something about it. I think the real problem is that competition law just tends to be very slow and it's very backward looking in these kind of very fast moving tippy markets. First, I think it's worth stepping back and asking, what does inequality between companies mean exactly? Because there are a few different ways of measuring it. Some companies are bigger than others, so they have lots of sales or lots of employees. Some companies, and not necessarily the same companies, are more productive than others, which means that they can squeeze out more output for every unit of input that they get, or generate more sales for each worker they employ. I asked John why one might care about inequality between companies. The first thing is that what you get paid in your workplace, and indeed, you know, the experience you have at work, your well-being, does depend on the firm you work for. For a long time, economists would say, well, you know, really, wages are not you know, not determined by who you work for or just depends on your skills, for example, your experience, your education. I think now there's, especially the last 15, 20 years, there's a lot of evidence that if you work for a very successful firm, then you will tend to get more money, even if you're almost identical to someone who's working for a less successful firm. So this idea of part of what we get in terms of our wages is influenced by what firm that we work for. So it's obvious to a normal person, but to an economist, it's revolutionary. Uh, but anyway, this, it's true. So, you know, if inequality increases between firms, then you're also going to get a force for increasing inequality between individuals, because as differences of firms' performance changes, differences of workers' wages will also tend to have a force for getting wider as well. So I think that's, that's the first thing. The, the second thing we might care about is that if the top firms are kind of pulling away and the laggard firms, the kind of follower firms, are struggling to keep up, that could be a problem in terms of overall economic performance or productivity. So, for example, if when one firm becomes very much more productive, another firm we would expect eventually would copy the innovations or copy the ideas or copy the things that the really successful firm is doing. If that's not happening, that could indicate a failure of technology or failure of good ideas or management to diffuse. And that could be a force for slowing down productivity growth. And productivity growth is really important because ultimately productivity growth will determine what people's income wage growth is or what the ability governments have to spend on redistribution or education and so on. So that's the kind of second economic reason. And then the final reason is a kind of political reason, 
which is that if there was a, a group of firms, as we'll get on to, <laughs> there are, who are the kind of really successful superstar firms who are pulling away from everybody else, they might have a lot of power to influence the laws that govern them, the regulations that govern them, the taxes that they pay. And that force through lobbying or through other ways could actually undermine the kind of political system and people would feel rightly that this is skewing the rules of the game towards them. So inequality between companies might be associated with unequal wages. Ultimately, we do still really care about people. It also might suggest a lack of dynamism, that something has gone wrong, such that smaller companies are prevented from growing. And it could be a poison for democracy. I followed up by asking if there were any reasons to be particularly worried about this in the UK. One of the worries that people had in the US was slowing growth, especially after the global financial crisis. And in the UK, of course, that's also true, but you know, in spades. For example, if you look at productivity growth, it's really stunning. Perhaps the most stunning fact about the UK economy is that you know, in roughly the 30 years leading up to the global financial crisis, productivity growth was growing at about 2.4% a year in the UK. Since then, it's gone down by a factor of 10, so it's more like 0.2% a year. And that's absolutely catastrophic in terms of the ability to improve people's living standards, because if we're not increasing the size of the economic pie, then there's much less that we have to share between different people, whether it's in higher wages or in better schools and hospitals and so on. So that was the underlying thing why I wanted to look at it and see if it could have helped with the UK, explaining why our growth performance has been so 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 pitiful. <laughs> to use a technical term. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty urgent problem to fix. So how plausible is it that inequality between firms is contributing to that stagnant productivity growth? I asked John to set out how extreme that inequality is in the UK, starting with a simple measure based on the number of employees that companies have. So say you split by 250 workers. So, you know, firms above 250 workers versus below 250 workers. That's like less than 0.1%, one of the thousand or firms in the economy have more than 250 workers, about 8,000 firms compared to many millions of firms in, in the UK economy. But those 8,000 firms account for about two in five of all jobs, about 40% of all jobs, and they account for half of all turnover in the UK. So you've got one in a thousand firms accounting for half of all sales which happen in the UK. So that just shows you how concentrated activity is in those firms. And of course, you know, obviously, as you go up further and further in distribution, you also get increasing kind of skewness. That's the level of inequality. But what about the trends? The clear message from the data is that there has been a pretty big increase of inequality between firms over the last 20, 25 years. For example, if you look at a measure of productivity, you know, value added per work or something like that, and then you kind of divide up the economy and look at, say, the top 10% of firms compared to the median firm, the firm in the middle of the distribution compared to the bottom firm, and you you weight that by workers. Then in the middle of the distribution, for the, the kind of worker in the median firm, if you like, productivity looks a lot like it has in the UK economy as a whole. So you had a kind of you know, relatively healthy growth between, say, the mid-90s up until the global financial crisis in 2008. And then since then, it's kind of been like flat as a pancake. So it looks quite similar to what we see in the agorist economy, if you look at the median firm. If you look at the top firms, the top 10% of firms, you see quite a different picture. 
roughly there's about a 50% increase of their, of their productivity. And that difference between the kind of firms at the top and firms in, in the middle, the leaders versus the, the, the laggards and the mediocre firms, that's widened very dramatically. And that's actually true in, in many other countries around the world. In the bottom 50% of the distribution, there also seems to be some increase of inequality. It hasn't been as dramatic as what's happened in the top half of the distribution, but there has been some increases of inequality. In the Deaton review, I think we had about a number around about 20% increase of inequality. But to be honest, that number differs depending on the exact different data sources you use. But what all data sources that we've looked at in the UK show is that the upper half of the distribution things have become a lot more unequal if you look at productivity. And if you look at some of the other measures in terms of size measures or in terms of profitability and things like that, you also see increases of inequality too. One point to make here is that the small firms at the tail of the distribution, that long tail, they're so small that you'd need really massive changes there to move the headline numbers on, say, growth or productivity. That's why John is so focused on trends in middle firms and the top firms. If you're worried about headline growth and headline productivity, focusing on those bigger firms is much more likely to yield results. Let's move on now, though, to talk about why this inequality of firms might have been rising. What or who is to blame? One set of explanations is to do with how technology has changed. Because of these trends that I'm talking about in terms of increasing quality, we've seen them across lots of countries now. It does you know, suggest that the fundamental reasons happening rather than things which are specific to a particular country. So one technology story is you could think of this as the Google story. So in high tech industries, network, digital industries, where Google is or where Apple is, often it's the case that these markets are prone to network effects and tipping. So if one firm gets some advantage over another firm, they can get the whole market or large fraction of the market goes towards them. And this is true in lots and lots of digital markets. So I mentioned Google because, of course, Google's made its name in search. So what happens with search is they search for a thing on the computer. Google gets information on you, so it improves its algorithm. And therefore, you're more and more likely to use Google as a search engine rather than Bing or one of the other ones. So that has this kind of chicken and egg reinforcing dynamic. The more people use it, the better it is. So the more people use it. So eventually the company can get a very large part, if not all of the market. It's kind of winner-take-all type of phenomena. Another example would be, you know, social media and Facebook or Instagram. The more people who use it, the better it is. So the more people use it and the market gets very concentrated. So one set of stories about why you've had the top firms taking over is to do with this kind of winner-take-all Google fact type of story. So that's one one thing happening. And as those industries become a larger and larger part of the economy as they are, then you know this is becoming a more important factor. Now, the Google effect type of story, the network effect story, can't be the full story because high-tech digital sectors are only one part of the economy. And these changes that we've seen, increase of inequality, increase of concentration, and so on, have happened over a much wider number of industries. The other technological story that people think is important is the Tesco story <laughs> or the Walmart story. So because of the growing importance of information, communication, technology, a company like Tesco can invest hundreds of millions of pounds on software, which enables it to track its supply chain in the UK and all over the world, do kind of just-in-time management, do a whole set of things to make itself more efficient in its distribution network, which a smaller, you know, mom-and-pop type of independent store, or even a small chain, just can't possibly emulate that 
by spending as much money on that type of intangible capital software, which has a big fixed cost component. So where the importance of fixed costs like that increase, in this case, you know, for software, that gives large firms a big scale advantage over smaller firms. So I think that type of phenomena is also arguably another reason that has given large firms advantage because they can make these very big investments in things like software, other forms of intangible capital, which help them. Those two explanations are basically that technological changes are behind the increase in inequality. Network effects or the growing benefits from paying massive fixed costs have helped these top firms command a larger and larger slice of the market. But there are other candidates too. The, the, the stories that we might worry more about is to do with things like the government failing to do its duty in regulating big firms. So if one of the things that's happening is that, for example, the competition authorities who are meant to uh, prevent firms abusing their market power or taking over other firms and using that as a way of strengthening their position, if the competition authorities haven't been doing their job effectively, then they're going to be allowing large firms to take over more and more smaller firms, do things which make it harder for small firms to catch up with them. For example, maybe abusing the patent system or intellectual property system to prevent smaller firms from being able to get access to their technology or access to their data. So if it's those type of activities, which is the underlying cause of this, then that, you know, that's the problem of poor policy enabling firms to exploit their market power. Clearly, if that's the case, we really should be worried about that because that's not only causing problems for higher prices, it could also cause problems of the low productivity we've seen. So that's a reason that we should be concerned about. The strongest argument in favour of it being technological changes rather than policy changes that are driving this increase in inequality is that you see pretty similar trends in Europe and the US but there are policy differences between them. Complaints about antitrust enforcement are just much quieter in Europe. Here's John again. My personal view is that the story that it's all to do with these institutional changes on conventional policy, you know, I, I find it hard to believe that's the full story about what's going on. I, I certainly believe that's true in certain industries and certain sectors. US hospitals, for example, I think you know they've massively concentrated and have you know done a pretty job for the patients who, who go there. But no one's saying that, you know, DG Comp, who are the competition authorities in Europe, are going too soft or too weak, as far as I know. And we've seen some of the same trends in, in Europe as we have in the US. I don't think that blaming it all on the on government's weak competition policies is the full story about what's going on. I think it's a partial story about what's happening in some places. My sense is that it's more to do with these kind of technological stories, which are kind of common across countries and happens at different places and different speeds. But I think those kind of Google effects and Tesco effects are probably more important. But having said that, even if you thought my view was right, I don't think that leads you to the view where we can just you know, sit back and be relaxed and don't need to do anything. Because even if many of these companies have got to these powerful positions, not primarily because they've been you know, lobbying and corrupting the rules of the game, they've got there through you know, competing due to technologies and increasing in fixed costs. Now they have become so powerful, they have the ability to do some of you know the negative things that you know we, we might be worried about. So I do think that we need to do things to guard against 
the risks that many of these superstar companies could be doing things to harm the welfare of, of workers and of people. Okay, so even if policymakers are not to blame for rising inequality between firms, they should not relax. Even if it's technological changes that are weakening competition, they have to find a way to respond. They have to work harder. I want to turn now to Amelia Fletcher, who is Professor of Competition Policy at Norwich Business School. She also happens to be a non-executive director of the Competition and Markets Authority, but she's really speaking to us with her academic hat on. I started our conversation late last year by asking her whether she thought that when it came to these big tech firms, regulators had made mistakes, or whether they just hadn't kept up with the implications of all this technological change. So I think one of the first things to highlight is that these big tech firms have bought lots of positives. So they've brought lots of exciting and useful and free often or low price services. For firms, they've brought access to global markets, targeted advertising, enhanced logistics. For consumers, there's lots of consumer choice. For innovation, you know, there's lots of in-house R&D. Actually, Their buying out of small companies sometimes is the incentive for those small companies to start up and and innovate in the first place. And they're very good for bringing innovations to the mass market quickly. So actually, I think what's happened is that for a long period, the regulators have kind of watched those positives and thought they're good. And why would we want to intervene here? In addition, they've noted that often in markets that are kind of characterised by network effects, as John described, you can get very intense competition to win those markets in the first place. So even if you don't have much competition in them, you have competition for them, and that even monopolised markets can be contestable. Therefore, there's been a kind of reluctance to intervene if you think the market is going to sort itself out. But I think over time, it has become clearer that there are just increasingly serious issues arising from these firms and that we just can't really rely on that what's sometimes called Schumpeterian creative destruction of kind of competition for the market, new innovations coming in and completely destroying the market position of the old monopolist. And so I do think that although it was probably right for the regulatory community and and governments generally to kind of stand back for a bit, I think we were a little bit slow to then catch up. For example, from 2010 to 2021, the top five big tech companies did 569 acquisitions globally. So that's an average of nine acquisitions per company per year, which is a lot. Many of those acquisitions will have been absolutely fine, pro-competitive, good for innovation, but at least some of them definitely weren't. And in fact, very few of them were even reviewed by the competition authorities. They just kind of assumed that they were fine. Very, very few were remedied. So I think that's just an example of the regulatory community being a bit slow and finally realising it needed to to do something. Okay, so let's dive into some specific examples of, of what's been going on. Could you talk a bit about the specific challenges in this big tech space? We see a number of markets becoming monopolies or duopolies. So Google has over 90% of the search market 
across most areas of the world. Google and Apple have a duopoly over mobile, basically mobile operating systems, app stores and browsers. Microsoft accounts for the vast majority of desktop operating systems with Apple the only real rival. And Amazon in 2020 had sales about 15 times, this is in the UK, that of the nearest competitor, eBay. So just the big tech companies are are really big and they're all in markets that are more or less monopoly or duopoly. The nature of these services is that they're really critical business partners for an ever-growing part of the economy. So many businesses can now only gain serious custom if they're visible on Google search or if they sell through Amazon or if they make their apps available through the Google and Apple app stores. And so what that means is that even if there's more than one player then because users tend to be what's called single homing. So I don't have an Apple and a Google phone. I just have an Apple or a Google phone. If you want to access me as a user, I am single homing. You have to use whichever phone I'm using. And therefore, even though there are both Google and Apple in the market, actually, as a business user, you have to use both. And so because these big tech companies are so critical for so many businesses, they have a kind of stranglehold over them. And if they don't use that stranglehold well, and we've seen them not always using it well, that's going to be bad for all of those businesses. As John kind of described, that's then bad for all the workers in those businesses or the shareholders of those businesses. It's also bad for consumers. It can be bad for privacy. It can be even bad for things like democracy. So there's really wide implications of all of this. Right. And what about the implications for innovation? In tech markets, innovation requires firms to have access to data, also access to users. They have to have access to the relevant infrastructure. So they need to be able to interoperate, for example, with the devices. And they need to get fair rewards if they're going to actually get their money back for making the investment. And the trouble is that actually the biggest tech platforms control all of that. They control the access to the data. They control the access to the users. They control the access to their infrastructure. And they control the amount of money that these players can get. And so that means that their decisions absolutely affect the innovation decisions of all of these other players. And they're in a marvellous position to copy any of the most successful innovations, which means that they can just sit back, watch what others do, and then basically steal their ideas. So that's not an environment that we think is going to be the most conducive to future innovation, even though there's been lots of innovation in the past. Can you talk a bit about how regulators have been trying to deal with all of this already? So there have been lots of investigations into particular markets. There's been a mixture of competition law cases where firms being investigated for deliberately, strategically kind of anti-competitive behaviour. There have been merge investigations where you decide whether a merge is allowed to go through. And there have also, particularly in the UK, been market studies just to try and understand how these markets work and what are the features of the markets that are kind of limiting competition. So, for example, the CMA has done market studies into digital advertising, which is particularly into Facebook and Google in that case. And those have been really, really interesting and, and raised a whole bunch of issues. The competition law cases have been particularly 
and I think this is relevant here, given it's about inequality, they've been particularly about an issue called self-preferencing, which is where a platform essentially is active itself in one of the services that use that platform, but treats itself differently to how it treats third-party services. So as an example, there's a current case to Spotify taking action against Apple, this is in the EU, for Apple's preferential treatment of Apple Music. And likewise, the Google shopping case in Brussels was all about Google's search page giving preferential treatment to Google's own comparison shopping service, the shopping box that you see on the Google page when lots of other players were saying, look, we provide comparison shopping services, but we can't get the same access to the all-important Google shopping page. Okay, so there has been action. What is the problem then? I think the real problem is that competition law just tends to be very slow and it's very backward looking in these kind of very fast moving tippy markets. So, for example, I mentioned the EU Google shopping case. It was first launched in 2010 after a complaint in 2009. It was finally decided in 2017. And even then, the remedies took time to put in place and indeed are still being tweaked. And the decision is still on, it's now onto its second level of appeal. So that's a long time if you're trying to actually solve market issues. Also, competition law tends to be very narrowly focused, too narrowly focused to create deterrence, which is what competition law is meant to work by taking a few cases, but then those setting very clear rules so everybody else kind of behaves, you create deterrence. But actually, because these cases are so narrow and tend to be quite esoteric, they don't seem to have the same deterrence effect. So for example, Google Shopping is just one example of something called vertical search. You also get, you know, the Google Flights box, you also get the Google Jobs, there's lots of those sorts of vertical search terms. None of those have benefited from the remedy that has been imposed in the Google shopping case. Google hasn't thought we have to do the same thing in all the other cases, even though economically, you might think that they were pretty similar. Right. And could you tell us a bit more about what has been happening in a UK context? I mean, where has the policy movement been? So in 2019, a number of economists and one lawyer and one computer sciences expert were commissioned by the then Chancellor of the UK to do a report into these markets and and what needed to happen. It was led by an American economist called Jason Furman. Uh, The two UK economists on it were Diane Coyle and myself. And we recommended, having looked at all of the issues, I think we were most originally asked to think about how competition law needed to be improved in order to deal with these issues. But we ended up coming out by saying, although there were improvements that we thought could usefully be made, they were not likely to be sufficient and that we really needed targeted pro-competition digital regulation for the very largest firms, not across the board, but just for those very largest firms. And to do things like limiting self-preferencing, the self-preferencing I've been talking about, but also doing things to really help stop those markets from tipping. So 
We know that in markets with network effects, you can limit the concentrating effect of those network effects. If you have interoperability, if you have multi-homing, the more multi-homing you have, the less likely it is that network effects will lead to markets tipping to monopoly. So what we thought was a regulator could put in place rules that really create enhanced interoperability, enhanced multi-homing, limited self-preferencing, and thereby facilitated the opening up of those core markets, but also limited their ability to use the market position in those core markets to leverage into new markets and therefore create kind of massive ecosystems. In the UK, the government actually accepted the proposals of the Furman report and relatively quickly set up something called a shadow digital markets unit, which is the kind of shadow regulator within the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK. But then for a long time, the actual legislation seemed to be in progress, but kind of didn't actually progress. And in the meantime, actually, the EU has overtaken the UK and it has now legislated the Digital Markets Act, which in a rather different way does all those same things. It's got the same objectives and it does many of the same things as we were intending in the UK. It does it in a rather different way, kind of legally, than how we were proposing. And that seems to have now kicked the UK into action as well. So in November, in the autumn statement, we actually got a commitment to the UK legislation coming, I think, in the next year. So that's really very exciting, likely to happen. It's challenging, though. It will be really interesting to see how it works. So yeah, but very exciting. So watch this space. Oh, I absolutely will. My last question is about what success looks like. You said right at the start that you could have stiff competition for the market, even if there wasn't obviously competition in the market. So you might have a monopoly, really dominant players, but as long as they're sufficiently scared about losing their monopoly position, they they might actually behave pretty well. So I guess the question is, whether we could get to a position where we were really successful in ironing out all of these problems and yet inequality between firms or market concentration was just exactly the same as what we have now? I think if we end up in a situation where market concentration is exactly the same, we probably won't have been successful. It is true that we're trying to do two things with the new regulation. We're trying to open up those markets And to the extent that we're unable to open up those markets, we're trying to stop those market positions being exploited or leveraged into new markets. So there would be a measure of success if we just stop the exploitation and the leverage or limit the exploitation and the leverage. But I think the real success is going to be if we open up those markets with these measures like interoperability and multi-homing, also measures like data portability, data sharing, all of these things are designed to really open up those markets. So I think that's going to be the really big success measure. We'll have to see if we achieve it. Since my conversation with Amelia, there have been some developments in this area. The government has now published the Digital Markets Competition and Consumers Bill, and it is going through the process of becoming law. That will allow for the CMA to direct pro-competition interventions, like ensuring compatibility between different platforms, 
or making it easy for customers to switch between services. And the bill will include powers to fine companies up to 10% of their global turnover if they don't do what they're told. At the same time, the CMA has really been trying to shake off its sleepy image and instead cultivate one that is a bit more aggressive. There was one recent case where it blocked Microsoft's takeover of Activision, which is a video game publisher. Though, as we record this, it's unclear how that case will turn out. Now, as the CMA becomes a bit more pushy, don't be surprised if the companies affected complain. But remember... The point is to benefit smaller companies without a voice. Smaller companies that might not even exist yet. And that is it for this episode. If you're interested in the evidence gathered as part of the IFS Deaton Review, you can find it at ifs.org.uk forward slash inequality. A huge thank you to John Van Rienen of the London School of Economics and Amelia Fletcher of the University of East Anglia. I'm Samaya Keynes, economics columnist at the Financial Times, Alex Catling was our audio producer, and thank you for listening.